You're listening to the J.D. Rucker Show. Let's begin. Well, what a weekend it was. It was a crazy weekend as we look back on it. Of course, last night, I'm sure everybody's already heard by now, but last night, a uh, part of Joe Biden's motorcade got hit. That was big news for a little bit until it was realized that, oh, it's probably just something something innocent, maybe maybe a drunk driver, maybe just a reckless driver, maybe it wasn't that big of a deal, but it just so happened that the collision took place right when Joe Biden's leaving. I saw this one video of this lady saying, why is Trump beating you in the polls? And, and Biden mumbled something as he's walking to the car, and then you hear the crash, and you look over, and, and this guy... This guy had hit, hit a parked car in the motorcade. I was out in the street. Strange stuff. They ushered, of course, Joe Biden in there. Nobody thinks it was related to anything, but it drew attention away, as did pretty much everything else. You know, of course, this entire weekend, I've, I've almost tried to avoid social media. It's rough because I have to use social media when I'm running vlibertydaily.com, uh, but I didn't enjoy it one bit because about every third or fourth post was was the picture of some dude's back who had apparently been engaged in in uh, homosexual porn in the Senate chambers. We covered this, of course, last Friday, and uh, now we're stuck stuck with talking about it. And it just it bugs me. It bores me. Okay, I get it. It's one of those things where it's a like, ooh scandal, you know. And of course, corporate media barely touched it at all. And those who did touch it, of course, they blamed Republicans. <laughs> they blamed conservative media. Oh, we're the ones in. And we're the ones that are, are doing it. And then this, this former former staffer for uh, Senator Ben Cardin, he uh, he's blaming us. He says, oh, you know, this is all about homophobia. This is, it's weird. Whenever you see these events happen, the radical left always tends to, to point to some sort of bigotry as the reason that we're paying attention to their their follies. No, it's because of what they do. It's not who they are. Wouldn't have mattered. It could have been a heterosexual female who was engaged in filming sex in the in this chamber, the Senate chamber, we still would be talking about it. It wouldn't matter if it was a Republican or a Democrat aide or whatever, but they don't look at it like that. They always have to turn it into identity politics because that's all they've got. That's all they've got. I mean, if we could say one good and bad thing about Barack Obama, it's good and bad that he made the Democrat party essentially focus solely 100% on identity politics in every single possible decision that they make. Every policy, every decision, every statement, everything they do is about identity politics. It's not about actually solving any real problems. It's about manufacturing more problems, and those problems are generally fake. They're not real. Okay? This is why we always have all these hate hoaxes. They have to have these hate hoaxes because there's the, the actual number of true, legitimate, hateful actions taken against these, these groups, these protected groups, are very minimal. So they have to manufacture them. It's all manufactured. It's all a gigantic lie. I don't want to start today off too negative, but <laughs> man, it really is. We had uh, AmFest. That was a positive. And I'm going to be talking more about that later, actually. I'm, I'm going to save that for the second hour, but I, I do want to talk a bit about about uh, these, these conferences and stuff like that. Uh, those who've watched in the past, I'm not a big fan of CPAC, not for any other reason, but just because CPAC is, it's really turned into a, it's, it's like a, it's just a, a who's who. It's like, oh, yeah, so are you going to CPAC? If you're not going to CPAC, then you don't get your conservative card renewed. You know, it's, it's like, a, I don't know. I get it, but I don't. I don't. I will be talking about it, though, because I want to I want to stress the importance of what we have to do, you know, not just with this coming election year, but also just in general. This isn't about 
you know, we've gone beyond the point of being able to to try to win on the basis of ideas, not because our ideas are wrong, but because the the adversary doesn't go around ideas. They don't try to to make it fair and talk to take their ideas versus our ideas. Instead, they like to just pretend like there are no ideas at all. And they try to quash our ideas. So there's only one real way to fight it, and that's to make our ideas louder. That means we need to build the base. I'm not talking about the Republican base. I'm talking about the America first, the the true constitutional conservative base, the populist base, if you will, whatever, however you want to label it. The, the base of those people, those of us who actually want to fight for the sake of freedom. We've got a good show today. We've got a great show today. Uh, and unfortunately, we've got to start with Lindsey Graham, so it is what it is. Over the weekend, the Uniparty Swamp unleashed one of their favorite talking heads to go on to the Sunday shows. They took Senator Lindsey Graham and told him to go try to throw a smokescreen, uh, a monkey wrench, whatever you want to call it, into the whole Biden impeachment scenario. Uh, and he did just that. Watch. Okay, let's turn to the other big story on Capitol Hill, the impeachment, of course, uh, of impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Your colleague, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, said that he does not see any evidence, quote, that the president is guilty of anything. Do you agree with him? Is there any evidence so far? You know, I haven't really been paying that much attention to it. They have to prove they have to prove that President Biden somehow financially benefited from the business enterprises of Hunter Biden. We'll see. Have they done it yet in your mind? Uh, if there were a smoking gun, I think we'd be talking about it. But So let's be clear about two things. Number one, the role of U.S. Senator, the responsibility of a U.S. Senator falls under three categories. Number one, they're supposed to uh, pass legislation. They shouldn't pass as much leg- legislation as they do, but needless to say, they are supposed to pass some legislation. Number two, supposed to represent the interests of the people in the state, the people that they actually directly represent, the people that voted for them, they're supposed to represent those people and their interests. Number three, and arguably most importantly, they're supposed to offer oversight for the executive branch, the extremely powerful executive branch. Our founders knew that if the executive branch didn't have certain checks and balances that enabled them to be to be held responsible and accountable, that they wouldn't be. They wouldn't be able to police themselves, as we've seen through multiple presidencies over over the years, over the decades. Joe Biden is arguably the worst. And I, I'll say arguably, I'm going to say demonstrably, he is the worst. He is the most corrupt president we've, we've had in modern history, at the very least, perhaps in American history. And for the a sitting U.S. senator, a senior sitting U.S. senator, say that he hasn't paid attention when the current president of the United States is credibly accused of multiple massive, massive national security crimes, bribery? Uh, influence for sale to foreign interests, receiving money from multiple nations, multiple uh, non-government organizations from foreign foreign bodies, for him to say he's not paying attention, I mean that is, I'll just say it right now, that is grounds for him to to step down. He's he's lost his touch apparently. If he hasn't paid attention to the most important news story, the most important uh, development of the day. In a, in a time when there are so many important developments, this is it. This is the most important one. The most powerful man in the United States of America is likely compromised. And a U.S. senator isn't paying attention to that? Step down, sir. Step down. This isn't just, you're not just an embarrassment. If you're not paying attention, you're not just an awful senator. You're a traitor, and you need to leave immediately. 
But number two, the other thing that we learned is that he's using the good old uh, if I would, could you? It, I, it's, I don't know what it's called. It's a, it's a tactic. I forgot. There is a name for it. I forgot what I always thought of it. A, if you would, could you? He's u- using the tactic of, of answering questions by saying, well, I'm not saying that what you're saying is false, but if it were true, don't you think this or don't you think that? He says, you know, they're asking him, do you think it is? Do you think that he, that he should be impeached? He's like, well, you know, if there was a smoking gun, I think we would all be talking about it. As if he's not aware that, of course, corporate media is not going to talk about the multiple, multiple, unambiguous, clear as day smoking guns. I mean, it is, you can't breathe. There's so much smoke around all of these guns that are demonstrating that Joe Biden is corrupt, compromised. He took bribes. His entire crime family needs to be behind bars. But, of course, corporate media is not going to talk about it because they love him. They hate Trump. They hate Republicans, but they definitely hate Trump the most. And they don't hate all Republicans, at least all people that that uh, put an R next to their name. They don't hate Lindsey Graham. They love Lindsey Graham because he's going to run run smoke for them, smoke screens for the Democrats, as he's doing right now. Notice he didn't say that I don't think that Joe Biden is this or, or I don't think Joe Biden did that. He's saying, well, if he did, don't you think? That, that we, this would be everybody would be talking about the smoking gun, insinuating that since corporate media is not talking about the multiple smoking guns, they must not exist. In short, not only is he a traitor, but he's hoping, and he, I think in his heart he truly believes that you and I are stupid, and for that alone he should step down, and probably a lot worse. He should probably go to jail because I do believe he is a traitor. So sorry, Senator, I'm not sorry. The Chinese Communist Party is laughing at us. They laugh at us often, especially over the last three three years or so under under Joe Biden. They're they're laughing hysterically. I'm talking about like deep belly laughs at at our actions, and in particular, they're laughing at most of the rest of the world for being so obsessed with climate change. They realize they know, just as our own leaders know, that climate change, at least the the agenda, is a hoax. I'm not saying the climate's not changing. I mean, we have weather, we have weather patterns, we have we have changes in those patterns, yeah, but as, as far as man-made climate change that's going to, to kill us in 10 years, 20 years, whatever, five years, three years, depending upon who you, which, which cult member you listen to, uh, they, they know it's not true. Our own leaders know it's not true, uh, but still, we're perpetuating the, the scam for the sake of effect, for the sake of advancing the globalist agenda, and meanwhile, China is laughing at us. But every now and then, they will take advantage of, of our national obsession with climate change and, and really Western society's obsession with climate change, and they'll take advantage of it when they can use it to harm us. There's a story over at uh, uh, Daily Caller by Nick Pope. You can find it. We have it cross-posted with permission, of course, over at discern.tv slash food dash UN. I know it's long, but you can go there. Check it out. Discern.tv slash food dash UN. Here's what's what's in the latest food report from the UN body run by an ex-CCP official. The United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, an agency headed by a former Chinese Communist Party official, issued a Sunday report calling for decreased meat consumption in developed countries and other sweeping changes to agriculture in order to fight climate change. And we've seen variations of this over, it seems like, Every single week, every couple of weeks, some agency, some global uh, organization, some some 
uh, oligarch, okay, some technocrat is out there saying, well, you know, we, we need to reduce our meat consumption here in the United States and in Western society, especially beef, because beef is bad. Beef is killing, you know, somehow, some way, <laughs> you know, animals have been been on the earth for all this time and yet now now they're they're killing us with their farts allegedly the report back to the article the report released ahead of the uh, un climate summit's conclusion calls on policymakers to substantially alter agricultural markets in order to fight climate change and align the agricultural system with the climate agenda the fao is led by q dong yu the ccp's former vice minister of agriculture and rural affairs who has been accused of using his post as at a global institution to advance Beijing's specific interests. And here's a quote from the FAO report. Providing health food for all today and tomorrow is crucial, as is aligning agri-food systems transform, transformation with climate actions. Agri-food systems should address food security and nutrition needs, but, but, <laughs> food just shouldn't just feed people. <laughs> There's a big but there. But they host a large number of of actions aligned with mitigation, adaptation, and resilience objectives. Simultaneously, the climate agenda could mobilize climate finance to unlock the potential of these systems and drive their transformation in one paragraph. Okay, they were able to throw out all, they, they laid out the entire game plan. You know, yes, we need food, we need better nutrition, but we need to do it in a way that we control. Number two, it's all about climate change. It's all about climate change. Number three, this can actually be a good thing if we get enough money to battle climate change. So they made the ask. They asked for the money. They they used the boogeyman, the skeleton key the, of climate change. And on top of all that, they said, oh, by the way, you peasants can't can't determine your own food. You can't grow your own food. You can't eat whatever food you want. You must listen to us, the smarter people, the technocrats. We are the ones that can determine what foods you will be eating in the very near future. The article goes on, and it's one of those ones that just the more you read it, the angrier you'll get. So I'm not going to read any more because I'm already in a you – know, Lindsey Graham put me in a bad mood earlier. So so let's go ahead and just put that story aside and focus on the reality. Yes, they are coming after our food supply. Yes, they are coming after our food supply. I cannot repeat that enough. Okay. Klaus Schwab – no, sorry. <laughs> Klaus Schwab's uh, uh, predecessor. Uh, Henry Kissinger, he always said, who controls the food supply can control the people. And that is one of their goals in their depopulation and control agenda. They're using climate change. Even the CCP knows this. And if you say, oh, he's a former CCP guy. There's no such thing as a former CCP guy. Okay. There are CCP people. And then the only quote unquote former CCP people are dead. That's it. You're CCP for life. Once you're in, you're 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 in. There is no going out. It's like Hotel California. Okay, who's down with CCP? Yeah, you know this guy is Q. Is his name? <laughs> Funny enough, Q Dong Yu. Well, F U Q Dong Yu for for taking advantage. He doesn't believe in climate change. He doesn't believe it. He's using this. The, this entire organization, the entirety of the United Nations, is using it for their depopulation and control agenda. This is why we, we launched our company in the first place. Okay. I'm not going to do a, do a pitch, but I will say you know, now, if you're watching this before Christmas, now is the time. Okay. To take advantage of the, it's the best discount we ever had. We're never going to have it again. I can almost guarantee it. I want to promise you, you never know what's going to happen, but we are for the first time ever offering a 25% discount 
by using promo code one time 25 at wholecows.com. Wholecows.com will help you to, to eat better, not just today, but also in the future. Ribeyes, New York strips, tenderloins, high quality, freeze dried, long term storage, 25 year shelf life, all American, all Texas beef. So check it out. Wholecows.com promo code one time 25 because they are, I mean, period. I, look, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, my audience, the vast majority of you already realize that they are coming after the food supply. They've been coming after the food supply for a long time. They're going to, they're in the process of attempting to use food to absolutely positively control us. It's not just through inflation. It's not just through shortages. They're trying to control every aspect of our diet. They're trying to make it to where, to where we'll only live in our 15 minute cities. We won't have any choice about what foods we eat and none of it is going to be good for us. It will be genetically modified. It'll be crickets. It'll be lab grown. It'll be something that was, that was born in a petri dish and not a pasture. That's not what I want to do. That's why we, we launched our company in the first place. But make sure that your friends are aware. Make sure your relatives are aware. Because I think I get the feeling a lot of people just don't know. I mean, they just don't get it. And I understand that if they're watching Fox News or CNN or whatever. But for those of you who are watching or listening to me, and there are others out there that are saying it, but, but me in particular, you will know that, yes, the food supply is under attack. And there's no help on the at the end of the tunnel. Okay? It's like you learn how to take care of yourself, take care of your family, start stocking up, plant your garden, get your chickens if you can, do whatever you can to take control of your own food security. Stock up because there's going to come a time when a whole lot of people are going to wish they had, and you don't want to be one of those people because that's talk about gnashing of teeth, just not gnashing it on steaks like, like we will be. <laughs> There are very many, a lot of arguments in favor of artificial intelligence. You can really make a great case. And of course, my perspective, for those who have listened to me before talk about artificial intelligence, you know that my perspective is it doesn't matter how many positive uses you can find for artificial intelligence, the negatives will outweigh them because the negatives are that this is an existential threat to the human race. This is an existential threat to life on this planet. And that's not hyperbole, that is reality. And I'm not talking about just from a Skynet, you know, Terminator perspective. There are a lot of reasons for for us to be concerned about artificial intelligence and for us to essentially hit the brakes permanently, okay? I mean, seriously, just, I know it's not going to happen. It's it's wishful thinking to believe that artificial intelligence isn't going to to emerge, that it's not going to to become transcending in this planet. There have been many movies talking about it. We are at that stage in human existence where the science fiction is going to become reality very, very, very soon. One of those positive things, and I noted this in last week's show, I think it was Friday, I had referenced an article, I didn't talk much about it, but I would referenced an article that I'd seen uh, about how artificial intelligence is being discussed to replace news anchors. And I said, that's one of those examples where, yeah, I mean, I could see if I wasn't a skeptic, if I wasn't a conspiracy theorist, if I was if I was blinded by the allure of artificial intelligence, I would say, you know what, that kind of makes sense. You know, you could have opinion uh, people and, you know, show hosts that are asking questions and offering their perspectives and commentary and all that stuff. But when it comes to news, technically speaking, one would think that you could actually improve on news reporting by letting artificial intelligence just simply take the facts and regurgitate them in an easily digestible format for humans. Using 
artificial intelligence to write articles, for example. That is another one where you could say, technically speaking, as long as you're transparent about it, as long as you're not pretending like Sports Illustrated was pretending that, that they were making up fake names for these AI bot people, you know, they're actually giving them, give, pretending like they were actual reporters that were reporting on these things, despite the fact that they were, they were not, they were completely artificially generated, whatever. Yeah, as long as you're transparent about it, I don't see anything wrong with that. Again, I have to be crystal clear. Everything is a slippery slope when it comes to artificial intelligence. It really is. I mean, any anything that you, you start to, oh, you know, that's not so bad. Maybe I could just do this. Everything is a risk when it comes to AI. And if I if I thought that we could somehow stop it, then stop it from emerging, stop stop people from researching it, stop Google and China and everybody else from doing their thing, chat GPT, Microsoft, everybody's getting involved. And once we attach artificial general intelligence, which is either coming soon or it's already here and we don't know about it, once we combine that with digital access, internet access, and then on top of that, put it behind a put a quantum computer behind it, it's game over, essentially. We will then literally have our artificial intelligence computer overlords. And who knows, people people have smarter people than me have made the connection between artificial intelligence and end times prophecies, but that's that's for another day. We'll discuss that some other time. For now, I want to talk about this one specifically about Los Angeles-based TV channels, uh, channel that is set to launch AI news anchors in 2024. So if you're watching this, it's it's uh, middle of middle of December now, right? And if you're watching this in January, then then you're already there. It's already happening. This is by Laura Harris over at Natural News. A television channel based in Los Angeles is set to launch news anchors generated by artificial intelligence uh, in February of 2024. AI-based, or LA-based, <laughs> it's, all, it's all becoming AI. Los Angeles-based Channel One will be debuting these digital humans, a mix of digitally created avatars and quote-unquote digital doubles created by the channel. By next year, the Daily Mail reported these digital news anchors will be reporting news updates on global events. They will also be featuring featured in free streaming TV platforms. Adam Mossum, Channel One's founder, said news reports will come from trusted official sources like public records and government documents in par partnership with undisclosed legacy news outlets, commissioned freelance journalists, and AI-generated news reports. The digital news anchors will then report the news on air. Mossum added that Channel One seeks to provide viewers with a personalized news experience similar to the popular social media app TikTok. Oh, yeah. Throw AI in with TikTok. Let's just, let's just surrender now, folks, okay? We're going to be speaking Mandarin at any point. The app is designed to adapt to users' preferences over time, learning their habits and interests, whether it's financial news, sports, or other topics. Channel One will you also use digital double anchors to replace the voice and mouth movements of people in news stories with an English translation. Holy cow. Deep fake translators. Awesome. This, in turn, will transform local news stories into an accessible format for international audiences. If we can generate, and this is a quote from Mossum, if we can generate 500 stories and choose the right line, 9 or 10 for you, then we're doing going to do a better job of informing you and showing you what you're looking for in your allotted time. Now, there are some very clear risks with this, but the biggest one, according to Laura over at Natural News, is the, the risk of fake news. 
As she puts it, media professionals and critics expressed fear over the development, voicing out potential consequences that could befall the dying news industry. And here's a quote from Kristen Ruby, CEO of the public relations firm Ruby Media Group. She says, if you believe in the concept of fake news, you have seen nothing. At least your news is presented by humans. When AI news anchors replace human news anchors, the concept of fake news will have a totally different meaning. BC Today reporter uh, Alec Lazenby denounced the utterly terrifying idea of having AI news anchors. While the, the development of an entirely AI-powered broadcast is beyond impressive, it could have huge, huge ramifications for an already depleted news industry and accelerate the loss of high-quality reporters and anchors. Hmm. Like I said, there's some positives to, to this stuff. No, I'm just teasing. Look, local news, national news, corporate news, uh, news in general, Okay, anything anything that's dying is a result of their their poor poor judgment. And this is not a solution for it. Artificial intelligence is not the right solution. Not just because of the fake news risk, but because it does it it puts in the true the the biggest risk, in my humble opinion, which is to to subtly propagandize us, to subtly gaslight us. Now, if you think that it's bad enough and it's already happening, you're right. If you think that it's as bad as it can get, you're not even close. Artificial intelligence will learn and be shown by humans how to start manipulating us in ways that we have no idea. We, we don't see it. We can't hear it. It's just there. It's, it's uh, pounding on our minds. I won't be watching it. That's for sure. Not because I'm concerned that, oh, they're going to indoctrinate me to suddenly, you know, drink oat milk instead of regular milk. No, I'm not I'm not concerned about that. It's because there's going to be there are going to be ways that they're going to get into our heads, period. OK, through the visuals, through the audio, through a combination of the two. It won't just be simple, you know, false reporting. It'll be sneaking in other aspects through technology, you know, stuff. I'm, we're talking about DARPA level stuff that's going to be utilized. I guarantee you, they're already working on it. They're already doing it, probably. Okay? This just enhances the ability for that to happen. I forgot the name of this movie. There's a movie from the 80s. Uh, and no, not not They Live. <laughs> There's a different movie from the 80s. Oh, Scanners. or No, it wasn't Scanners, obviously. Oh, I forgot the name. Um, gosh, it's it's old movie. Anyway, I'll, I'll try to find it during the break, and we'll see if we can we can highlight that. But it's it was terrifying because it did talk about the ability to to manipulate people, and oddly enough, presciently enough, through basically taking deep fakes, they would take they would take the the actors or the news anchors, and they would be they would be able to to scan them and then generate them artificially, so that they can be made to say whatever they want. The whole idea behind deep fake technology combining with artificial intelligence, which you know they people like to say AI deep fakes. It's it's one driving the other. It's not the other way around. They're not. It's not one and the same. In other words, artificial intelligence has very has unlimited applications. One of those applications is to be able to generate deep fake videos, right, and audio simultaneously. This is a, a huge risk. But then once you combine the actual, that's that's with us humans giving an input to to this this tool that can create deep fake. But once you have artificial intelligence actually driving the deep fake messaging. Actually, putting the the words, but also the sounds, the enunciations, the subliminals, that's where it gets really just truly terrifying. I'm already convinced that 
a large part. I don't know if it's a majority. It probably is. It could be a vast majority. But a large part of our population, especially in Western society, and very particularly here in the United States, is already brainwashed. Brainwashed beyond beyond uh, redemption. Brainwashed to the point that they can't, in different degrees of brainwashing, by the way, but either they're brainwashed to where they, they have anger when they don't need anger. They're brainwashed to the point to where in even when faced with unambiguous truth, they refuse to see it. They're incapable of seeing it. We know this because we, we've seen, and the easiest example, of course, is to look at the unhinged left. We already see that you can give them facts. You can give them logic. You can give them the, the truest truths out there, and it cannot pen It doesn't make a dent. That's not somebody who's acting. That's not somebody who's like, oh, well, I, I do know what a woman is, but I'm going to pretend like I don't. No, they legitimately, many of them have been reprogrammed to the point to where they truly can't, I mean, it's like they can't fathom the idea that, that we think that a woman is actually a biological female human. They're like, what? These simpletons, why do they think that? You know, it's nuanced, it's complex. We have to take into account the feelings and the emotions and the true identity because, because nobody else can know what's in that side that person. And I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, it's infuriating. Now, here's the thing. Take all of this brainwashing, all this indoctrination, and increase it exponentially. Make it tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a millionfold. That's where we start getting into what the possibilities are for indoctrination, for brainwashing, utilizing artificial intelligence that is driving artificial intelligence-generated news, news reports, um, education. It starts here. What's next? Education? You'd think maybe, huh, well... AI can teach better than teachers. That is the next step, folks. Or maybe not the next step. Maybe we're two or three steps away, depending upon you know what happens politically speaking. Currently, we have as our artificial intelligence czar Kamala Harris, and that's so. So she's not thinking that far ahead. She's not thinking about tomorrow. She's not thinking about the next ten minutes. She might not be thinking at all, for all we know. Maybe she's already been completely fully indoctrinated. She's been AI zapped, and now she has she has no idea. She could probably pass the bar exam finally. Uh, but anyway, I digress. There was a, uh, probably the best, I would say this is, the, this is the best explanation of the danger of AI delivered by a politician. I've seen some really smart people uh, talking about artificial intelligence in ways that, that, that can terrify you. <laughs> of course, I've also gone out and, and you've heard my many rants about artificial intelligence, but here's Vivek Ramaswamy. And this was unique. Again, I when I hear politicians talking about AI it's generally pretty dumb. I mean, no offense, no offense to I, you guys are trying. Some of you are, most of you aren't, but but some of you are really trying to get this stuff. You don't. You're not getting it. You're not seeing the true risk. Vivek Ramaswamy seems to be uh, at least understanding mostly the risk of it, and he is a pretty smart guy. So let's let's and no, I'm not endorsing him. <laughs> I don't endorse Vivek Ramaswamy, but I do like his opinions on artificial intelligence. Let's play that. I'll tell you a funny story about AI. We'll take it outside of politics. Now, this is not for you. Oh, that's my mistake. All right, maybe the ice cream. What do you say? Should we give him a bite? He didn't want I did. He wants more. Nice. <laughs> so I'll tell, we'll take it outside of politics, then I'll bring it back in to see what's going on with AI. Anybody here a tennis fan? I like to watch tennis. So my first job was actually as a ball boy at a, this tennis tournament in Cincinnati. And then I got a promotion to being a line judge when I was in early high school, like ninth grade or so. 
So as a human line judge, you make the line calls. It's not done that way anymore. It's all done by AI. They predict where the ball is going to land. So back when I used to be a line judge, the funny thing is, you know, it was all the rage where players used to argue with the line judges over the call, John McEnroe and everything else. Something funny happened. When the AI started making the call, the first generation of the AI, it was so bad that you could literally see it with your eye, that it was like a bad call. But the funny thing is that the players stopped arguing with the calls. So why do I bring that up? The biggest danger of AI is actually the human response to it. And I don't mean to get too philosophical, but I think, it, I think it's actually important. You asked a deep question, and I want to give you a proper answer. I'll give you the simple AI policy. I'll give you the superficial piece, but I want to come back to the more important part. Superficial piece is hard boundary between AI and kids, just like we talked about for the transgenderism. Draw a hard line, at least. AI-powered algorithms should not be regularly interfacing broadly with kids. I think that we should not ban anything that China is also not willing to ban. But the right way to deal with it is don't ban anything. Put the liability on companies. Right? So we should tell the companies you're going to be liable. You're going to be liable for any unforeseen consequences of a protocol that you develop. That then at least makes them take the risks into account on the front end, which they're not doing today. So that's the right answer as a matter of policy. But I want to go back to the deeper point about the tennis players not arguing for, about the calls. Go to ChatGPT today, or some equivalent, and ask, how do you address climate change? Or how do you address racial injustice or whatever? It'll give you an answer as though it's a political opinion, but it reads with the authority of somebody who's converting degrees Celsius to degrees Fahrenheit. That's the real danger. And so I think that, yes, I'll give you the AI policy, but at a philosophical level, the best answer to the risks posed by AI is actually the revival of faith in, in this country, faith and patriotism and a belief in something bigger than ourselves. Because here's what's really going on, whether it's AI or wokeism or transgenderism or climatism, or COVIDism, or depression, anxiety, fentanyl, suicide. It's not an accident that we see the rise of these same poisons at the same time. They're symptoms of a deeper void of purpose and meaning in our country. And I think we got to fill that vacuum with the real thing. There's an old expression, if there's a hole the size of God in your heart and God does not fill it, something else will instead. The same can be said of belief in a country. So that's what's going on in, in the country right now is we are lost, we're hungry for purpose, and that belief in something bigger than ourselves is actually going to be the best protection against bending the knee to whatever the new false idol is. AI perhaps being the least, latest one. Like I've said many times, I like Vivek Ramaswamy. I don't necessarily trust Vivek Ramaswamy, his connections with the World Economic Forum. I know he's tried to debunk them. I also know that it's one of those things where once you're in, it's kind of hard to get out. I also don't trust his past um, past perspectives. I'm I'm one of those guys. Look, I forgive people. Okay, when it comes to getting things wrong, politically speaking, you know, when you got people like Glenn Beck, who was a 
he swore he would never, ever, 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 ever support Donald Trump. And then he did, you know, and, and I, so I don't I don't hold it against him that that he was wrong. OK, that's there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I also know because, because here's the thing. If you're like, oh, you know, you, you got to be ideologically pure your entire life. Why would you support Donald Trump then? I mean, this is a guy that was that was in favor of partial birth abortion. This is a guy that was in favor of assault weapons bans. This is a guy who figured it out later in life that he was he needed to to allow his perspectives to evolve. So bottom line, you know, when it comes to Vivek Ramaswamy, I do. It's not that I don't think that he could have evolved. I'm just not sure if he did. OK, I think that a lot of his his shtick is is very geared towards towards being impressive and being MAGA. And he sees that as a pathway through which he'll be able to achieve his life goals, whether it really is that he wants to be president of the United States or if he wants to be in the cabinet or what I think is the most likely is that he he plans on parlaying this into a, a very important and powerful media career of some sort. OK, after after the primaries, after he's out, if he doesn't get a cabinet position. And again, I don't even know if he wants one, but whatever it is, you know, you can say what you want about his uh, his desires, his dreams, his ambitions. She definitely have to acknowledge the dude's smart. He's wicked smart and he knows what he's talking about here in the case of artificial intelligence. Now, I would draw the line, obviously, if I were running for president, I would draw the line at not just, oh, you know, regulated for kids and, and I would try to put an end to it altogether. Again, we're talking about an existential threat in my humble opinion. So no, it's not like, well, we need better regulations. We need to make sure that, that the companies that develop it, they're held accountable. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, you, you all can sue this company because they developed the artificial intelligence that now rules over the planet. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> no, I'm, I take a, a bit more of a, of a uh, bullish approach to wanting to put an end to the advancement of artificial intelligence. But, but then again, maybe I'm in the minority. So this next story is going to probably seem like a sort of a repeat from last week, but it's not. This is this is a story about Nikki Haley, and last week I covered how the polls are manipulated to try to boost her up, and we're getting further confirmation of that. And thankfully, more people in conservative media are starting to catch on to that fact. Uh, that's a good thing. For for clarity, when it comes to Nikki Haley, I do consider her to be the worst potential Republican nominee in my lifetime. Yes, worse than than George W. Bush, worse than than uh, John McCain, even worse than Mitt Romney. She is that bad. She is a neocon, hardcore. I mean, Dick Cheney in high heels might not do her that that moniker might not do her justice. As far as her her uh, charisma, her personality, or whatever, it it's just not there. It's just not. I don't trust her at all. Okay, there's certain people in politics, most vast majority that I don't trust. Uh, I take my trust level of her to to the the lowest possible level. It's that's how bad she is. She really is that horrible. Um, and I, you know, if if I'm forced forced into Ron DeSantis, fine. I don't like him, but I would vote for him over Nikki Haley any day. But we were forced into Vivek Ramaswamy. I don't trust him. But I would vote for him over Nikki Haley any day. And if the choice came down to either Nikki Haley or Chris Christie, I'd probably try to seek a, an audience and do everything I could to get uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to to redo his economic plan, perhaps get some some more conservative-minded 
uh, economists to advise him and revamp that because his economic plan, you know, he's right on, on several topics, but when it comes to the economy, he is arguably worse than Joe Biden. Seriously. I mean, Kennedyonomics would be worse than Bidenomics if you could possibly imagine that. And I know you probably can't, but it's true. It's just awful. And at this time, this point in American history, we can't have even worse economic policies than we already have. But according to this article, it's over at uh, the National Pulse, Rahim Kassam. Uh, I'm just going to read a couple of sentences from it because the rest of the story, he goes into, dives into details, you know, reasons that he believes this latest poll is wrong. But the you should be able to hear and determine that it's wrong based upon just the first two sentences. So the article's titled, The New Nikki Haley Hype Poll in New Hampshire Isn't All It Seems. No, it's not. Unless you're like me, and and what you think it seems like is that it's a manipulation by the uh, Uniparty swamp to try to to stir up false false hope, uh, perhaps false would it would, momentum uh, surrounding Nikki Haley. It's that's what they're trying to do. Anyway, according to the article, a new CBS YouGov poll purports to show Nimrata Nikki Haley gaining on President Trump in New Hampshire. The top lines show Haley with 29 percent up from just 11% during the last poll, 29%. She almost tripled her support since the last poll. Now, is, is she moving up? Yeah, you betcha. Now, not because of anything she's doing, but because the, the DeSantis campaign is tanking so miserably. As a result, the never-Trumpers who, who will vote for whoever they think can beat Trump in the primary, anybody, they'll vote for anybody, okay? Anybody. They will take literally anyone over Trump in the primary. They are that unhinged that they they just they still don't understand. Okay, now keep in mind they're still kind of questioning. You know how did how did we possibly survive the first term of President Trump? Because they were certain that that first term was going to destroy the United States of America. They were certain of it. And when that didn't happen, when we actually flourished for the first three years up until COVID, it's like uh, hmm, oh, you don't we we don't understand. Our calculations aren't coming out, but but by golly, we weren't wrong about him. <laughs> and we're sure that if he gets a second term, then that's it. That's it's over. We're all going to be, he's literally going to walk into every household in the United States of America. And he's going to blow every household up with a nuclear bomb where we, we checked with our statisticians. We're a hundred percent certain that that's exactly what's going to happen on day one of a Trump presidency. 330 million nuclear bombs. It's not funny. I mean, it is, but it's not. That's how unhinged they are. Point is that they are they are manipulating these polls. They're trying to use these to to manufacture momentum for Nikki Haley because they think that she's the the last hope. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they have. You no, know, there is another. Maybe they're they're still uh, hoping that uh, Glenn Youngkin will pop in or something. I don't know. They've they're giving up on DeSantis. They don't like Ramaswamy. Chris Christie is just a is just a a puppy that they they thought he was going to be his big attack dog and it's like he's been completely neutered because he can't go out there and rip on trump during the debates and it's always he's relegated to getting on cbs news to say oh trump's going to kill us all with nuclear bombs or whatever it is that he says point is is that i'll leave the link to this article in the uh in the show notes but but yeah yeah they're trying trying real hard trying real hard to make make nikki happen Ah, didn't they watch Mean Girls? Stop trying to make Nikki happen. It's not going to happen. Um, and there's a reason. So, so just to be clear, it's more than just uh, that they're manufacturing this and that she's so far behind and doesn't really have a chance. It goes beyond that. 
Okay. And this is, so if you're there, if you're one of those people, it's like, well, you know what? I don't like, I, I still support Trump, but what if they take him out? Okay. We all have, I mean, let's acknowledge the fact that the deep state is putting everything they can possibly throw at Trump to try to prevent him, to try to take him out from, from even being the candidate. Okay. They're doing everything they can through lawfare and hopefully, you know, please Lord, don't let it happen, but, but possibly even other means they're, they're wanting to try to take him out. So people are, are thinking in the back of their minds. I think a lot of you are. And what is the alternative? Okay. What if they take out Trump? Okay, what if he goes to jail or something? Number one, of course, we all know that the chances are the nation would burn as a result. But but let's say the nation survives and we still have an election in 2024, then who's the backup? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, maybe Nikki Haley could. I mean, she is supposed to be able to beat Biden more easily than everybody else, except that's not the case. Let me uh, turn to this other story by Susie Moore over at Red State. Latest Fox News poll shows Trump with widening lead. That's not news, but there is a second part to it. And an interesting note on voters' second choice. And let's get, scroll down, scroll down. Trump's winning, Trump's winning, Trump's winning. Okay, now, when asked, this is asking Trump supporters, ask their second choice, the top picks among Trump supporters are DeSantis with 50%. So if Trump gets taken out, DeSantis allegedly will get half of the Trump voters on his side. Number two is Vivek Ramaswamy, Mr. Mr. MAGA, want to be MAGA, want to be better MAGA than, than Trump. That's how he positions himself. Um, he's coming in at 20%, and Nikki Haley's coming in at 14%. She's not even, there's 86% of Trump supporters consider her to be the, their, their second choice, their backup choice. How many of those people would go to RFK Jr. instead of, uh, instead of Nikki Haley? How many of those people might even just say, you know what? No, we're, we're just not going to vote at all. I would say a lot of people would. If Nikki Haley were to become the nominee, then I believe that Joe Biden or whichever Democrat they, they slide in there instead of him will beat her. They're trying to position her as the one that is most likely to beat Joe Biden. That's not true. It's the exact opposite. She is the one that would lose the most handily to Joe or Michelle Obama or Gavin Newsom or whoever else they throw, throw up at us. She might be able to beat Kamala Harris. Okay, there's a, there's a, I think she could probably beat in a Nikki Haley versus Kamala head to head battle. She probably could beat <laughs> Kamala, but, but I think she would lose to Joe despite all of his dementia problems. I think that she would lose to, I know she would lose to Michelle Obama. And I know that she would almost certainly lose to, to Gavin Newsom. Both Obama and Newsom are extraordinarily talented campaigners, orators. They've got, you know, deep state and, and all sorts of things behind them in ways that's what, what props Joe up. And it's a whole other discussion for another day. Point being is that, that no, Nikki's don't think that Nikki's the best second choice just because you think that she has a good chance of beating, beating, uh, <laughs> beating Joe or anybody else. It's actually the worst. Now let's finish this segment off with, uh, this is actually, it's funny because I got this from Zero Hedge, but it's actually from the Epoch Times, Austin Alonzo over there. Haley's top backers into, include Democrat donors, Silicon Valley billionaires. And I would say most of you know this, but I just, for those who don't, let's go ahead and just throw this out there and let's use this as the nail in the Nikki Haley political career coffin. Uh, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is racking up endorsements from key conservative fundraisers ahead of the 2024 primaries. She already has solid backing from wealthy donors in Silicon Valley, including those who typically donate to the Democrat Party, as well as her network of political action committees. Hmm. Sounds strange. According to the FEC filings and her campaign's spending ahead of the Iowa caucus, the former United Nations ambassador 
Uh, her main political action committee is SFA Fund, Inc. However, Ms. Haley is also linked to two other super PACs and a 501c4 organization. Da, 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 stand for America. That's the big one. According to the IRS, okay, here it is. According to the IRS, a, uh, no, that's not it. Where's, where's the part? Where is it? <laughs> I lost it. It was, I think I got the, I did. I picked the wrong article. Well, it, it, it's okay because I already know what it's, what it's supposed to say or what it should have said. It should have said that the bad guys, the worst guys out there, we're talking about the rhinos. We're talking about the so-called independents. We're talking about the, uh, I guess you could say the non-radical Democrats. They're all flocking to Haley. And I'm not talking about the voters. Keep in mind, as I've already noted, the voters aren't going to flock to her. But the money people, the the people that are bundling the donations, the people that are that are going out there and, and, and giving big money to these PACs, they're the ones that they were all Team DeSantis still. It's like, whoa, wait a second. This guy doesn't know how to run a campaign. Uh, how's he going to be able to beat Trump? How's he going to be able to beat Biden? We better seek somebody else. Oh, look, Nikki Haley's surging. Let's go jump on that bandwagon. Anybody but Trump, anybody but Trump. Again, J.P. Morgan Chase, okay, Jamie Dimon, Larry Fink over at BlackRock, just that alone, the fact that not only are these two that we know of and, and, and likely other global elite Kapal financiers, not only are they backing and encouraging other uber-rich backers to back Haley, they're, going to, they're endorsing her and going to meet with her. But the worst part is this. She's taking the meetings. She's going to them. She's saying, guys, whatever it takes for me to win, I'll do it. You guys tell me what you need me to do, what you need me to say, and I'll do it. Just help me to win. I don't have that as first-hand knowledge. I don't even have that as, as second- or third-hand knowledge. I just have an intuition for such things. And that's why she's taking these meetings. And that's why after these meetings, they're saying, hey, guys, let's get behind Nikki Haley. You really think they're going to back a Republican? Why would they back a Republican who supposedly is going to, to work against their interests? They wouldn't. They would only back a Republican that they believe that they can control. And they can control Nikki Haley. Spread the word. Make sure everybody knows that. So this next story is a bit, uh, I wouldn't say too personal, but there's a little bit of a personal personal aspect to it. The uh, Florida GOP chair, Christian Ziegler, was accused of rape a couple weeks ago. He was He's currently under investigation. The, uh, the Florida GOP voted to, to basically strip him of all his power, all of his salary, and then they're soon they're about to vote to see if they want to eject him. Now he has gone to them and said, Hey, look, you know, innocent until proven guilty and all this stuff. There is a slight personal connection here. I did work with, with Mr. Ziegler, uh, on a project fairly extensively. It lasted a few months, but I worked with him. Uh, it's been over a decade. I probably, I don't know, Oh nine, maybe 2010, somewhere around there. And, and I got to know him very well. Yeah, I never got to meet Bridget, his wife, but but I don't think I did. Anyway, uh, but but I did. I I worked with him a lot, and I think I got to know him pretty well. 
I've been watching his career. He's, he's been great. You know, <laughs> he's been great other than this whole weird shenanigans. Up until that point, he's been one of the strongest uh, Republican uh, state chairs out there. Uh, he's been one of the biggest reasons that they have been able to do so well to gain so many Republican voters compared to, to Democrat voters. But now he is in big, big trouble. This article comes from uh, from Stephen Cat over at the Epoch Times. Florida GOP suspends chairman demands resignation amid investigation into rape allegations. Florida's GOP executive board have decided to take disciplinary action against Chairman Christian Ziegler while police investigate rape allegations against him. According to the article, Florida GOP Chairman Christian Ziegler has been suspended and told to resign during an emergency party meeting on Sunday amid an ongoing police investigation into rape allegations against him. Mr. Ziegler has been accused of rape by a woman with whom he and his wife, Bridget Ziegler, reportedly had a prior consensual sexual, consensual sexual relationship. Mr. Ziegler has denied the rape accusation and said that anything that took place was consensual. Police have not laid any criminal charges. According to a document shared on the social media platform X, formerly Twitter, by Lee County GOP Chairman Michael Thompson, Florida's Republican Party put forward a motion to censure and suspend Mr. Ziegler on the basis he has engaged in conduct that renders him unfit for office. Now, the way the story goes, apparently uh, some woman, we don't know who she is, her name has not been released, she she was, uh, she uh, has made an accusation of rape, and she said that she had engaged in essentially a threesome between herself and Christian and Bridget Ziegler. They had tried to establish, tried to set up another, another sexual encounter, and when when this unnamed um, alleged victim uh, learned that Bridget was not going to be involved, she said no, and she she contends that Christian still came over and then proceeded to rape her. The nine one one call came in, I believe it was the the following day, where a friend of hers had had asked to ask police to do welfare check. They, she was fearful, and she told them a little bit of the story about what her friend had told her about what had happened the day before with with Christian Ziegler. Now, first thing that people are going to say, I think, and, and rightly so, there's this whole uh, thing. Whenever there's punishment that's involved with accusations, it's always, you know, we, we have, we're innocent until proven guilty, and that's true in the court of law. But in the court of public opinion, that's not necessarily true. And when it comes to private organizations, and keep in mind, the Republican GOP, even though we like to think it's a government organization, it's not. It's a private organization. As a private organization, uh, they do want to maintain a certain level, obviously, of of um, of integrity. And so, you know, on one hand, you've got these accusations that do seem to be to be. They're they're hanging over the party a lot. They're definitely hanging over Christian Ziegler a lot. Now keep in mind, if so, the the Zieglers have not denied that they know the woman. They have not denied that they had sexual contact with the woman. Um, Christian is denying the rape accusation. Fine, but there's still the impropriety. I mean, let's face it, we're as a as the party of family values, as they used to call us, what back in the nineties, you know, Republicans are supposed to maintain a a certain degree of uh, 
of decorum, I guess you could say, when it comes to to sexual. And I don't I don't get into anybody's business when it comes to whatever they want to want to do. I know what the Bible says. I know that what I do um, in my life and and stuff. But I don't I don't you know, necessarily judge people for that. But here's the thing: as the chairman of the Republican Party, okay, going into an extraordinarily important election year, being the chair of arguably the most important state during an election year, the most important state in the nation, being Florida, I would also call on Christian to step down, to resign, with the understanding that, hey, if he's cleared, if this is all proven to be bogus and and he's cleared completely, then he can make a play, play at it again. You know, I'm I'm a little. It's one of those situations where I, I'm not sure if they censored him for the sake of trying to get him to, to out. I don't know the the circumstances. I don't know if they went to him and said, "Hey, why don't you step down?" You know, this is we don't need this hanging over us. And he said no. So then they censured him. If that's the case, then so be it. But otherwise, I think it is. A, it's a foul move to go down this road. They should have sat with him and said, "Look, uh, if if it were me, I would have sat with him and I would have said, you know, we're we're going to get rid of you." at least temporarily, while you sort this out. You get it sorted out, fine. You know, you could you could make a move and try to try to get back in as the the state chair. It could even be a feel good story about false accusations and yada yada yada. Who knows? But, you know, if you don't step down, then we will remove you and we'll censure you and this will this will ruin you. You know, you can do the the right thing here and say, look, in light of these accusations, I need to put my full attention towards clearing my name. And I don't want to be a distraction for the party. You know, this, this nation is more important. Uh, this nation and the state are more important than my personal ambition. So I'm going to to step down for now. And I will hopefully, Lord willing, be back. And uh, after I clear my name, I'll come back and, and we'll, we'll do it all again. And we'll be stronger as a result. But instead, we're going down this road of punishment, of begging. I heard rumors that he had actually gone to the meeting and spoke at, at the meeting. Uh, the emergency Republican meeting down there and said, Hey guys, basically made, made kind of like a mafia offer. Hey guys, I got some, uh, I got a whole lot of donors. The donors are saying that if I can get my name cleared here, you know, everything's still working out that we're going to donate a lot of money to the GOP. Huh? Oh gosh, that was a terrible accent. And I don't even know. Is, is there, is there mafia working down in Florida? I don't know. I, it's been a long time since I've watched good fellas, but you get the idea, you know, uh, I'm not crazy about it because like I said, I mean, I, I don't consider him a friend. I haven't spoken to him in probably 12, 14 years, but I was a friend. I was an acquaintance. We have, we haven't really kept in touch. So it's, it, but I do like the guy, or at least I did. So it's hard for me to say, yeah, he should have stepped down, you know, based on this. Hey, listen, if somebody, if there's just some blind rape accusation and it's like, oh, I don't even know this woman. Okay. Benefit of the doubt. Right. But in this case, he knows the woman. He was involved with his own wife in a in a uh, whatever you want to call it a a uh, risque sexual relationship with another woman. Eh, I'm okay with with just just letting him let, letting him go. And again, with the understanding that if he clears his name, great, come on back. You know, take a shot at it. We won't guarantee you that. You know, we're not going to save the spot for you. But you know, you've done a good job here for the last few years. Your wife, who is, happens to be one of the co-founders of Moms for Liberty, a great organization, uh, you know, we don't want to tarnish her. Why don't you guys both step down, 
take some time, get this squared away, and then all things work out, come on back. That's what I would have done. That's what I hoped would have happened. But instead, we're going down this ugly, ugly road. I've made a prediction almost immediately after the October 7th attacks by Hamas against Israel. It was uh, actually a series of predictions. I'm not sure if it was the day of. It might have been. It's probably the day after. I think I was, I was reacting. But I said, look, folks, here's what's going to happen. First, there's going to be this outpouring of support for Israel. People are going to come out because the terrorist attacks were so hideous, so heinous, that the vast majority of Americans would be uh, pro-Israel, at least for, for a little while. And then over time, I said, over time, you're going to see the sentiment change, especially amongst leftists and Democrats. Now, there's always going to be those on the, the right. You know, the right does have quite a few people who are anti-Zionists, and these people are adamantly opposed to the existence of, of Israel. They want either uh, a one-state solution. Well, they want a two-state solution is the general, general uh, I guess, approved approved notion. But there's also the idea of a one-state solution. In other words, it, there is no more, no longer in Israel, there's Palestine. And yeah, Jews can live there, but, you know, just make it a secular democracy, essentially. I actually debated a gentleman about that, that very notion. Um, and he lost me when he told me that, that the concept of from, from the river to the sea didn't, didn't mean, you know, getting rid of Israel or the Jews. It, it meant they wanted freedom from the river to the sea with a one-state solution that, that had, you know, Jews, Christians, Muslims, everybody just living in harmony under this this uh, this theoretical, hypothetical, impossible scenario that they had they had depicted. But whatever, you know, it's I don't even know if they. I need to see if they ever actually aired it. I have for whatever reason I have a tendency of doing these these interviews or debates uh, on other people's shows, and they never end up airing them. It is I guess I'm just a I'm a creepy dude. I guess I don't know. You go figure. But point being is this: is that. Um, Number one, I was where I was wrong was in the speed, the amount of anti-Zionism that was going to to spread. And I realized so. So it was an opportunity, basically, it was an opportunity to seize on the narrative. And and the the globalists, the anti-Zionists, they they hopped to it pretty darn quickly. Even media at first was was very you know very sorrowful sorrowful for the for the Israelis. But then eventually they started shifting, especially once the the airstrikes came, the bombings came. Once you started seeing bombs hitting Gaza, all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's time to shift narrative. <laughs> we did our obligatory, oh, poor Israel uh, bit where we were talking about a little bit, but now we got to shift the narrative again. Like I said, this mostly affects the, the left, but it's also definitely has a, a place amongst many, many, unfortunately far too many, on the right. So now, fast forward, and what has this done? A lot of times we, we look at, at the youth of the world. I'm not just talking about kids. I'm talking about even young adults. The Gen, what is it, uh, Zoomers, right? Gen Z, is that what they're, they're called now? Gen Zers, Zoomers, something. These folks are extraordinarily impressionable. They will change their perspectives on a dime if, if necessary. 
And a lot of times, as soon as they're introduced to a notion, for example, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict, okay, I'm sorry, I'm, the, a lot of them, they just weren't even really aware of what it was and, and what was going on until the terrorist attack. And once that happened, now all of a sudden everybody's getting, getting uh, influenced by the people that influence them, whether it's TikTokers or their friends or their teachers or their professors or whoever. You know, and there was this, there's been this spread of full-blown anti-Zionism that's been, been hitting the youth. And that is starting to bear fruit, at least not bear fruit for anything good. The fruit being, being bared is for born, bared, born. The fruit <laughs> is coming, coming for the, the anti-Zionist cause. The fruit is being, being won by the, the globalists, which are generally one and the same. This, uh, article came out, I believe Saturday over at the New York Post. Majority of Americans, oh no, this is actually, was it? No, it was Saturday, yeah. Majority of Americans, 18 to 24, think Israel should, quote, be ended and given to Hamas. Okay. Let me, um, let me say this more slowly so you catch every important word in that very short headline. Majority, as in over 50% of Americans age 18 to 24, and we can, we can extrapolate that downward. So it's 17-year-olds with an opinion, 16-year-olds with an opinion, 14-year-olds with an opinion. They're going to fall into the same basic basic uh, range as these 18 to 24s. Um, majority of 18, Americans age 18 to 24 think Israel should be, and this is a quote, be ended and given to Hamas. Okay, so that is the, the most uh, radical version of the anti-Zionist concept. There's no two-state solution. This is a one-state solution. There's just no more Israel. There, Israel is ended, as they say. And as a result, they're given to, the, to Hamas. Not the Palestinians, okay, to Hamas specifically. Now, we can say, oh, you know, these are 18 to 24-year-olds. They're ignorant. That's true. But they're not stupid, generally speaking. They're, they might be ignorant of things, but they have... They have been been uh, exposed to this information, to the information about what's happening in in the Middle East today. Perhaps they've been exposed somewhat to the history. But whoever's doing the exposing, again, whether it's TikTok or their professors or whoever, they're obviously planting an anti-Zionist seed into their brain. And it's working, unfortunately. Let's uh, clear that out. Let's Let's look at this. Uh, from, or let's read this article, part of it. Oh, and it's by, sorry, it's by John Levine. Uh, a majority of young Americans said they believe Israel should, quote, be ended and given to Hamas according to a shocking poll. The survey conducted this week by Harvard-Harris polling found 51% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 said they believed the long-term answer to the Israel-Palestinian conflict was for Israel to be ended and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. Only 32% said they believed in a two-state solution. And just 17% said the Arab states should be asked to absorb Palestinian populations. 17%. Keep in mind, I, let's be clear. So... Before and I'm I'm not going to, I'm not done with the article I'm going to keep going but I want to be clear about one one quick fact for if any of you happen to be 18 to 24 or even younger than that there are currently 50 50 50 Muslim majority nations in the world there is one Jewish majority nation in the world that one Jewish majority nation in the world is the size of New Jersey okay. The Palestinians want that number to go from one to zero 
They want the other number to go from 50 to 51. And yet they have all these nations all around them. It's not like it's far. All these nations all around them that could and probably should absorb the Palestinian people. But that option is not an option, apparently, not only for the Palestinian people, not only for, for those other 50 Muslim nations, but also for 18 to 24-year-olds. Why is that? It's, it makes logical sense. It makes humanitarian sense. Okay? I mean, one would think that, that this should be a no-brainer, except there's two important pieces of history that we have to understand in order to know why that's not the case. Number one, the Palestinian people have, throughout their entire, uh, you know, I guess you could say, uh, displacement from the the land that, that technically was never theirs, let's be clear, this has been been land that that uh, was was theirs by by conquering, not by it wasn't something where they oh you know they've been there since since you know forever. No, keep in mind that the Jews were living in this land before Islam was even in, in, invented. Okay, long before Israel was even invented. I mean, we can go back to to King David around a thousand BC. So we're talking nearly two two millennia before the invention of Islam. But hey, that's just numbers, right? Let's get back to the article. Oh, and then the, the second thing to understand as far as history goes is that in the past, whenever there was, whenever the Palestinians did go, they were in Egypt, they were in Jordan, they were in all these various places, Lebanon. Um, there was always trouble. They always fought against the governments of those places. They, they were removed from those places because they were protesting because they were engaged in terrorism. Israel is not the only nation that's been been terrorized by the Palestinian people and by by groups like Hamas. They're just the latest. This has followed this group of people for the entirety of their existence. This is the biggest reason. I mean, why would Egypt close the borders? I mean, they've got a border with Gaza. They could accept these people. They could they could put it, basically put an end to it. Just have strict border security. You know, let in the, the women, let in the children, let in, you know, anybody who who's definitely clearly not Hamas, let them in, let Hamas have Gaza, and then is make it easier on Israel, make it easier on the rest of the world. Definitely make it easier on the Palestinian people that don't want to be involved, however many uh, there are of those people. But no, Egypt <laughs> just refused to do it. Lebanon's not doing it, Iran's not doing it. Iraq, Turkey, nobody's making an offer, nobody's, no, in fact, they're saying no, absolutely not, Before, don't even ask. Why is that? Could it be, just thinking thinking here, out loud, thinking out loud, but could it be because the 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 general, I'm not talking about the, the Islamic people, the civilians, the citizens. I'm talking about the leaders of these Islamic nations, as well as, you could say, many if not most of the leaders of the United Nations say, hmm, we've always wanted to get rid of Israel. Easiest way to do that is to make them the bad guys. You know, the easiest way to do that is to make the Palestinians the victim. So let's keep them right there where Israel has to make a choice, either allow their own people to be slaughtered or go through and try to surgically pick out uh, Hamas leaders, Hamas fighters, while they're amongst, uh, amidst a sea of people, 75% of which support them, support Hamas. Okay, let's not forget that, that, that three-fourths of... of uh, the quote-unquote innocent Palestinian civilians 
do support Hamas. They do support the terrorist activities of Hamas, and they voted them in. They've kept them there for, what, 19 years. So just some facts to throw out to you Gen Zers who may not be aware. Maybe even if you're you're not a Gen Zer, maybe you're an older person. Maybe you're you're starting to lean a little. You're starting to get get uh, you know hit with the with the corporate media narrative. You're starting to see maybe some of these some of these right right uh, leaning people that you like and you respect. And hey, they're right on abortion. They're right on this, and they're saying it's the Palestinians that it's the Jews' fault. So maybe you know, look, check the history, look at what's happening. I'm going to play a video here in a bit that should hopefully. Open your eyes even further, but but my intention, my my, I pray that some of you will listen and understand the reality here. And now, let's be let's be clear about one other thing before I move on. I by no means do I think that the Israeli government is is innocent. Whether they they've done everything right, they do a lot right. But they also do a heck of a lot wrong. Israel also has a deep state. That deep state is very similar to the American deep state. It may be one and the same for all I know. In that deep state, I do believe, my conspiracy theory, is that there's no way that that all these Hamas fighters and Palestinians were able to, to cross the border at the exact same time, the most heavily guarded, the most secure border on the planet, that everything, that they you know, they just left the border wide open, what, on the 50th anniversary of the last time there was such an attack like this, and that all of the, their, their technology, this technology is able to to detect if like a squirrel is running across near the fence, okay? They can see they, there was famous instances in the past where like small children got too close to the fence, and uh, and they were just picking flowers, and you know, and of course they had they had uh, commandos, Israeli commandos, ready to take them out or at least check to see if they were suicide bombers or something. I mean, it's just to me, I think the deep state, the Israeli deep state, perhaps in conjunction with the American deep state, set all of this up so that they could force a two-state solution. To come upon, to be to be basically even accepted by these Israeli people, most of whom do not. But with Netanyahu in as prime minister, with uh, with the the conservative bloc in control of the Knesset, that's it seems like the only way that they could possibly get get that shift, get a push to, for a two state solution, is if there was some kind of event and something that that changed the face of the world, just as this terrorist attack has done. Back to the article. These individuals, and this is a quote from uh, Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas. He's a Republican. These individuals siding with evil over democracy should be a wake-up call. Ideological rot among young Americans driven by woke values and victim culture has gotten so bad they've convinced themselves to sympathize with actual terrorists who hate America. And that is that is so totally true. So <laughs> most voters prefer a two-state solution. Of course, that, that has been the, the big push. I'm just going to read a little bit from this, um, from this, this poll. Okay. And again, this is 18 to 24 year olds. The one that stands out, obviously, is, is this conflict, do you, in this conflict, do you support more Israel or more Hamas? Okay. Should be a pretty straightforward question. When you look at, you know, people 65 years old and over, 96% support Israel, 4% support the terrorists. When you're looking at 55 to 64, 90% support Israel, 10% support the terrorists. And it goes onward and on or downward as far as support for Israel. People 45 to 54, 85%, that's probably, you know, that's, that's a fair number. 35 to 44, 76%. So we're still three-fourths of people over the age of 35, you know, from 35 to 44, they support Israel, not the terrorists. 
Once you start getting into Generation Z, uh, what is it? Uh, gen, uh, what are they called? Millennials. There we go. I get my generations confused. Once you get to millennials, you got uh, uh, 25 to 34 year olds. They're 69%. So still, seven out of 10 about. Seven out of 10 millennials do believe that Israel is, they side with Israel over the terrorists. It isn't until you get to the easily indoctrinated, easily brainwashed, easily manipulated group of the of the Gen Zers, the Zoomers, whatever. Now we're at 50 50. 50 50. 50 percent of this this young group they are in favor of the terrorists that entered israel so that they could beat kidnap rape and murder innocent people they support this they think that they're on the ideological winning side they think that they are the ones that have the higher ground if this is not just a wake-up call about israel this is not just a wake-up call about Hamas. This should tell you just how deeply embedded the radical, whatever you want to call the the woke mind virus, isn't that what, what Elon Musk or somebody calls it? The woke mind virus. They're colonizers in their mind. They've been told this, of course, by their, their college professors and their peers in TikTok, that Israel is colonizers. You know, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're definitely colonizers, even though they, they were on this land back around, what, 3,000 years ago, doesn't matter. No, 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 they're colonizers. They're colonizers because because that's what TikTok says. Because my professor, my professor, he waves around the Palestinian flag and he screams, free, free Palestine. So, and I like my professor, so so I guess I'm siding with, with, the, uh, with the mass rapists, the mass murderers, the people that take their own, own civilians own Palestinian civilians, women and children, and use them as human shields. These are the they, they support the people. Hey, good idea. Let's put weapons in schools. That way, Israel will look like a bad guy if they're trying to stop the weapons that are killing their people. Well, they're going to be they're going to be blowing up a school. They're going to be blowing up a hospital. Oh my gosh, evil, evil Israel. Good, good, good. Hamas. That's the that's the fifty percent, folks. If if this black and white, cut and dry scenario here. They they can still be indoctrinated in the wrong direction. What do you, I mean, it's no wonder they have no idea what a woman is. It's no wonder why, why like half of them or more have some sort of LGBTQIA plus uh, letter next to their identity. It's no wonder that they vote Democrat. I, mean, I hate to say it, but that's, that's the truth. They're... Hopefully, Lord willing, oh, Lord willing, they will grow out of it. They will, because we all go through our stupid times. I didn't. I mean, <laughs> I was a, an officer in, in young conservatives in high school. Um, but you know, the only time I ever, ever voted for a Democrat was when I was in kindergarten. And it was one of those kindergarten things where they asked the kindergartners who they're going to vote for. And, uh, you know, I voted for the Democrat then. I didn't know any better. Everybody voted for the Democrat then. I hadn't heard of, of the Republican candidate at the time. It's like, oh, well, well, I have heard of this guy. Let's go for that. And no, I'm not telling you which one it is because uh, I don't want to tell you my age. But <laughs> you get the idea. Oh, we all go through stupid times. But this generation just seems more stupid than, than others. So I'm going to play this video for you from a gentleman named Danny Buller. Now, keep in mind, Danny Buller is not some some right-wing 
ultra-Orthodox Jew. This is a, he is an Israeli, but he is a liberal. He is a, he is an atheist. He's a teacher. He's not your standard, you know, rah-rah, we got a, he, he's not, he's not a Netanyahu guy, all right? That's just not who this guy is, but he's makes some incredible points. This was a bad weekend for Israel. They end up, they killed three of their own, own people, three hostages who had been, been held and tortured by Hamas for two months. They were able to escape and then they get killed by the IDF. That's horrible. Okay. I mean, that's just absolutely horrible. Of course, corporate media is jumping on and using this as another reason to call for a ceasefire. Nobody's calling them the mainstream media types or, or any of these, uh, anti-Zionists out in the streets. None of them are calling for the hostages to be released. They just want Israel to stop to, to call a ceasefire. And, and let Hamas keep their hostages. They're, they're sex slaves, essentially what they are. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, point is, is that <clears throat> Danny Buller, you know, after this horrible weekend with lots of bad things happening, some good things for, for Israel, but some mostly bad things, he made a very clear distinction between how Israel handles the truth and how Hamas never deals in the truth. So let's play that. What a horrible weekend for Israelis. The darkest weekend since October 7th. In case you missed the events of yesterday, due to misidentification, three Israeli hostages were shot by the IDF after 70 days in Hamas captivity. A similar event happened a couple of weeks ago near Jerusalem when a soldier shot a civilian, mistaking him for a terrorist. Now, I'm sure all the Jackson Hinkles around here would love this. All the Israel haters would use these mistakes as evidence of how bad the IDF is. But I want to suggest a different way to look at this. In both cases, some IDF soldiers made a mistake. A huge mistake. They acted poorly. But as I see it, these events don't show how bad the IDF is, they show how good it is. You know why? Because first of all, nobody tried to hide anything. 30 minutes after this horrible incident, the IDF spokesperson reached out to all news agencies, informed them of everything, and took full responsibility. Second of all, all these soldiers are under investigation and will face charges for acting against the IDF code of conduct. The last IDF soldier who shot a disarmed terrorist was sent to years in prison. We sent our own soldier to prison after shooting a terrorist who just stabbed one of his friends because that terrorist was tied up on the ground. And that's strictly forbidden in the IDF. Heck, a few days ago, we dismissed a few of our soldiers because they sang Jewish song inside a mosque. What I'm trying to say is this. I keep telling you this conflict between Israel and Hamas is a war between good and evil. I know this sounds oversimplified, but you can watch my previous videos for more details. Now, the IDF has the moral superiority, not because all IDF soldiers are good. I mean, we just witnessed some bad ones. The IDF is morally superior because of how it deals with those bad ones. When we make a mistake, we don't hide it. We acknowledge it, we take responsibility, and we take immediate action against those who acted against our code of conduct. That's how we get better. Can you say the same thing about Hamas? Have you ever seen a Hamas official admitting a mistake? Did you ever hear Hamas saying, sorry, we killed those civilians? Hell no, because for Hamas, killing civilians is not a mistake. It's a policy. It's very much intended. If someone from Hamas would sing Islamic song inside a synagogue, he would not be punished. He would be praised. He would be remembered as a hero who disrespected the Jewish infidels. To conclude... In these terrible times when we hear about another hostage killed in Hamas captivity almost every day, we are reminded that the IDF also makes mistakes and they can be extremely costly. But we work as hard as possible to ensure these mistakes will never happen again, even if it means arresting our own people. We understand that by doing so, we might help our enemies, but we are not like them and we will never be like them. Despite what the BBC keeps telling you, we do absolutely everything in our power to minimize civilian death and we will always do so. So I'm not going to add any 
commentary. It's just what he said is true. Okay. As I've said before, I'm not, not one who thinks that Israel is above reproach, that they do everything perfectly. Um, they do a lot of things wrong, just as the U.S. government does a lot of things wrong. But compared to Hamas, it's not even close. Okay. If Hamas were to do anything bad, and they do plenty bad, they lie about it. They pretend like they don't. If they put weapons and fire weapons into Israel from a schoolyard in Gaza, they will lie about it. It doesn't matter if a U.S. drone catches them in the act, they'll still lie about it. They continuously lie. Their supporters, the, the anti-Zionists in the streets or on the blogs or on social media, the people, some on the right, mostly on the left, but, but there are some, some misguided people on the right, you know, these people who are, who are, are supporting these, these false ideas, they're either lying, just like Hamas, or they're stupid, or ignorant. We'll, we'll say ignorant. I, I know some of them. There are some that are, are definitely not stupid, some people that I consider to be friends. Not stupid, but still very much wrong on this particular issue. So we'll say that they're ignorant of the realities of what Hamas truly represents versus what, what Israel strives to represent. Again, Nothing perfect, nothing even really good about Israel. As a matter of fact, I would say that, that the Israeli government in particular, and, and definitely the deep state in Israel, they do many, 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 many bad things. Just like our government, maybe even worse. But again, if we're talking relativism, relative to Hamas, I mean, they're practically angels. So just, just keep that in mind when you're, when you're trying to decide who's got the moral high ground. Don't be one of these 18 to 24-year-olds who, who just don't get it. All right, I've got one more video on this topic to play for you. Uh, I'm making the decision now to do it. I wasn't going to because there's one thing. This comes from Washington Free Beacon. I couldn't identify the woman. I couldn't find the article, oddly enough. I found the video, but I couldn't find the article. It was kind of weird. But this is a, a woman who lost part of her family, lost her dad, lost her dog, has to deal with her kids. Thankfully, she had a safe room, so she was living in one of the, the kibbutzim, and she survived. But she was watching, watching uh, through the cameras. Well, I'll let her tell the story. But I almost didn't play it because there is a there's a distinction here. There's listen through all of this. There is no you know this woman says that she lost her faith in humanity. We shouldn't have faith in humanity. I know that's probably a runs counter to what a lot of people, a lot of my viewers, listeners, and and readers, and uh, yeah, believe. But but no, we shouldn't have faith in humanity at all. The, the, humans are bad. We're bad people, all of us. There is no one, no single person on this planet who is good. Now, does that mean that we can't trust people? Sure, we can definitely trust people. I trust a lot of people, maybe not as many as most. <laughs> but I would say there's there are certain people that I do trust. You know, if things go south, I know who I can call on. If 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 I'm in need, I know that that uh, I can call on certain people, and I hope that I'm a blessing that if other people are in need, that they can call on me. Okay. This is, this is the, the trust I have, but I don't have faith in people. You can't have faith in people or institutions or anything. You can have faith in God. That's it. And that's, that's all that you need. Thankfully have faith in God. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and savior. One of the things that I, I always turn to, there's, there's many verses. I, I prefer to look at Ezekiel 36, uh, one po portion of it, as far as the, how it's describing the, the return of the, the land to the people, to the Israelis, to God's people. The return of them is not for their sake. It's not because of anything they did. 
Okay? It's because it's for his sake. It's for his holy name that they were returned. And he also declares that their hearts shall be opened. We're still waiting for that day. Still waiting for the day when, Lord willing, if this, if this is what is what is prophesied, what, what God has planned, that he will open the, the hearts and minds of the Jewish people to realize that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, is their Lord and Savior, and that they will accept him. I do believe that's the interpretation that of Ezekiel 36 and other verses, by the way, other other. Uh, Passages of the Bible seem to indicate that this is what's going to happen at or near the end times. So, yeah, I'm. That's to me. That's a. That's one of the big signs. I'm still, still waiting on. Still waiting for that one to come, come about. You know, and I know there's a lot of, a lot of Jewish people who have converted over to Christianity. You know, Messianic Jews. But, um, but, but we're talking about wholesale. We're talking about, you know, the land of Israel, the Jews that are in Israel. Vast majority, if not all of them, who are still around, will, will be be given the truth. Their, their eyes will open, their hearts will open, and they will believe. So the reason, again, that I didn't, wasn't going to play this, but I decided to anyway, her, her story needs to be told. So, um, because this is somebody who, she was living in, in uh, one of the kibbutzim. She was, uh, she was attacked. She was, before that, she was a very pro-Palestinian. Okay. She, she, she truly believed in, in, and had a, a trust in the Palestinian people. And she lost that as a result of this. So let's, let's play that. I've lived in Eros my whole life and I felt completely safe. My door was not locked. It was not locked. The bloodshed in the war with Hamas began with a horrific series of attacks in Israel, including on the kibbutz near Oz. Near Oz was a place of peace and light, a tiny kibbutz community all but wiped out now after a bloodbath of hate that started a war. At that time, my safe room wasn't ready for anything like that. So we made a plan that if he can't hold the door, if, if they're coming in huge numbers and he can't, if they shoot the door, he will take the weapon and shoot us. And I know it's, it's very hard, but I would have preferred that on being in, in Gaza right now. At that time, um, I realized that my dad died. They killed him. He was in his safe room with my mom. And he's, he's a, he was a strong man. He was fighting with them. Like he held the door and they tried to open the door and they opened the door and shot him. It just opened this much and shot him luckily in the chest like he died instantly. Like, it's funny that the first question I asked my mom, like, was it quick? And did they take the body? Because we know they took bodies. And I thought to myself, like, he wouldn't want that. And I was very, <laughs> I was relieved that he died quickly and that, um, they left him there, like we could bury him, we, we could respect him. Like a lot of the people around me, they don't know where their bodies are. They don't know if they're alive. And some of them we do, we, we know they took bodies. Just to humiliate us, they don't have anything to do with the bodies. Israel says about a quarter of the residents of this kibbutz were either massacred or taken hostage by Hamas militants. We had people in the kibbutz who were very involved with the Palestinian um, people. Who drove, we had a one person, he's in Gaza right now, he's kidnapped, that he drove sick uh, kids from Gaza to the hospitals in Israel. 
We're a very peace-loving community. Like the, the country, they always make fun of us that we're very like people-loving and we want peace. And in Israel, not everyone feels the same. But we don't feel the same anymore. I always told my son, there are kids just like you in Gaza, just, just want to go to school and just want to live and just want to be happy and be free. And that's what I thought before. It's very hard for me as a mother to think about a woman who came to my home and saw the pictures of my kids and still came to, to, to steal and to terrify my kids. And the first thing she did is to open my electricity cupboard and take off the electricity just in the safe room. So she sat and watched TV and my kids, we had no water, no food, no air conditioning. It's the middle of the summer. It was so hot. Like she saw my kids' pictures on the wall. She knew there's a family inside, like terrified kids. I think that she's a mother as well because she took my kids' clothes and she took my clothes and she took, um, she took my credit card. And then she went back to Gaza and she, she went to the supermarket and she bought, I got a list of the things she bought. It broke my faith that people are good. It, I never thought that a woman would do that. Like men, yes, soldiers, yes, Hamas terrorists, yes. I knew they were very cruel and very driven, but I never thought the common people, kids and women, would participate in things like that. And it broke my, in my faith in the goodness of people, but especially people from Gaza, because I really, I really believed that the women and children were just they were kidnapped by Hamas terrorists. I really believe the Hamas kidnapped Gaza. And um, I don't anymore. I think they are participating. I think in that morning they told them, we are going to do it, do and this. Who wants to, to come in? Or they invited people they trust. And they told them, you can take whatever you want. You can take, you can plunder, you can steal, and uh, we'll keep you safe. And they told themselves, why not? Why not? Like, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm a teacher. I work with kids. I believe that all kids are good. All kids are good. No one is born bad. No one is born a terrorist. And I feel very guilty that I raised my kids in a place that weren't safe. I believed that I'm safe. I believed my kids are safe. I really believed it. Like, we have this sense of we want revenge, revenge, which is a horrible, horrible feeling. But I find myself showing my son's video of, of houses being bombed in, in Gaza because I want to show him that Israel is still strong. I want to show him that the army is strong, that someone is protecting us because he doesn't feel it anymore. And something in this faith was broken. It is broken. We don't believe in anyone anymore. We don't believe in the country. We don't believe in the army. We don't believe in ourselves. We don't believe in, in Gaza. We don't believe in the world. We don't believe in anyone who will come to help us. And it's um, like everything we believed was shattered in that moment. I don't want Hamas to exist anymore. I want the, the normal, the, the, the good people in Gaza to rule. I want someone who my country can talk to. And uh, right now, it's, it sounds like it will never happen, but now we're just, we're concentrating on 
grieving and dealing with the kids. My kids, they have nightmare. They don't eat. They, they, they lost a lot. Not just my dad. They shot my dog, and and they lost a lot of friends, and I lost a lot of friends and a lot of pupils. A lot of my pupils died, or they lost their parents. And I try to concentrate on not falling to the revenge that we feel like we want revenge. I'm trying not to focus on that because it's not healthy. It's not going to help my kids. Nowhere is safe in the world. Like Israel is the, is the safest place for Jews. That's what I believe. And it's very hard. I decided even in the safe room, I told them everything that's going on. I told them there are bad people in the kibbutz, but uh, daddy is looking after you and mommy is looking after you and we're strong and we're together. I told them about all the friends that died. And I told them about the dog. They were very sad about the dog. And and um, my father, we have, um, since we came here, we have a ceremony. Every evening at eight, we tell a funny story about my dad. Just to to keep him alive, just to and I tell them that he's thinking about them, and they see stars in the sky, and they say, "Oh, that's Grandpa saying hello," and they saw a dolphin, and say, "Oh, Grandpa sent us the dolphin," and like they're young enough to still believe that he's here with them. My son, he asked me to call his friends from school, and I called, and it was <laughs> like when they answered, I said, "Okay, you're alive," and then I called one of his best friends. And his mother answered, and she said, "Listen, he died." And I had to tell him, "Okay, and they need to know. They can't live in a world like I don't want him to tell himself stories. I want him to know the truth, and I want him to have hope. Like I keep telling him, we are strong and we're safe here. He he doesn't think think he's safe here in a lot. Like we went, um, they took him to watch to." watch stars with telescopes and he kept looking 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 and said what are you looking for he said terrorists and I can't say I'm not afraid as well I sit and from my hotel um, room I see uh, an amazing view of the ocean and Jordan and I think to myself can they come are we safe here and my husband said yes we're safe you said that about Niroz as well like, we don't feel 100% safe because what happened Like my faith in the goodness of people is gone. But my kids are still young enough to know better, to, to believe in, in, to have hope, to have hope. I don't have hope for peace in my life, in my lifetime anymore. And, but I want my kids to have this hope. Yeah, so clearly very heartbreaking, but also I go back to what I said. You know, there are those who believe that there's uh, the split covenant that, you know, the, the Jews, they get salvation. They don't have to believe and That's just, that's just wrong. That's not what the Bible says. Okay. Let's be clear about that. These people, all people need to be shown the truth of the Bible need to be, be given the understanding that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, and believing on him, repenting, and acknowledging the truth of 
both the Old and the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, but the entirety of the Bible, believing that, that is, that's our pathway. That is the, the narrow gate. That is the way that we're supposed to go. And it will be through that faith that, that we are given the ultimate gift, the only gift that really matters, the gift of salvation, the gift of eternity. And so I do hope that um, this lady, she's, she's very touching. Her story is very touching. She seems to be very brave, despite all the adversity that she's gone through, and she continues to go through as a result of the October 7 terrorist attacks. I just pray that she and others do have their eyes open and do realize who it is that they need to truly have faith in. A story crossed my desk over the weekend that <laughs> it really, you know, at, at first I, I saw the headline. I thought, oh, my gosh, what is this garbage? And But then I read it, and it's like, oh, okay, it's not garbage. It actually kind of makes sense, um, and especially as it, it pertains to uh, to what we're facing now as a nation with the economy and with risks. People know that, obviously, one of my, my primary sponsor is Genesis Gold Group. You can find them at JDR Gold dot com jdrgold.com and see what they can do to help you get physical precious metals but when i saw the headline i thought oh my gosh i can't even read this i went ahead and read it and it, it, you know what it kind of makes a little bit of sense maybe it makes a lot of sense to some people i am not an economist by any means but i do dabble i do i mean i have i would say that i'm more knowledgeable about the economy than most we'll just say that so this article comes from National News, Bell Carter over there, how gold price could hit $15,000 an ounce in three to five years as it enters new bull market, according to Rickards. And that's the, the last part, Rickards. That's the part that, that caught my attention, okay? It caught my attention because that's like, okay, so so here's somebody that we can actually trust. Let's see what Jim Rickards has to say about that. And uh, so I read the article. It's like, okay, hey, we're throwing in the show. According to the article, coming from a long bear market, uh, some analysts predict the value of gold to hit up to $15,000 per ounce in the next five years. So they advise gold bullion or mining shares investors to stay calm when gold rallies or when the dollar price retreats because they can assure that gold is still the best form of money and proves valuable to investors over time regardless of inflation or deflation. One of the experts assuring investors on gold value is lawyer, economist, and investment banker James G. Rickards, Jim Rickards, who believes that a bit of elementary math helps understand how the price, a dollar price of gold can move up in the, in the said period. And there's a quote from Rickards. We'll assume a baseline price of $2,000 per ounce, essentially where gold is today. He, uh, he said, explaining that a move from that amount to $3,000 per ounce is a heavy lift because that is already a 50% increase and could easily take a year or more. But beyond that, a further increase from 3000 to 4000 per ounce uh, as a 33% increase, another large rally. A further gain from 4000 per ounce to 5000 per ounce is a further gain of 25%. He's playing the math game. And the math game does make sense, because keep in mind, you know, the one thing that I don't think a lot of people understand regarding uh, precious metals in general, but gold in particular, Silver has a different because there's utility with silver, but gold has always been, I mean, throughout the entirety of human history. It's mentioned in the book of Genesis, thus Genesis Gold Group. It's mentioned in the book of Genesis all the way through the to the book of Revelation. It has always retained some degree of value. And that value 
is based obviously at least partially on scarcity, but also, and perhaps more importantly, on the perceived value of other forms of currency. Gold is currency. There are there are uh, city states that are already working to, I guess, promote the idea of being able to use physical precious metals as a direct currency within their states. Of course, we're I don't think that we could ever get back to the gold standard, but yeah, you could always hope. <laughs> you could always hope. Um, anyway, so that's because the starting point is higher while the $1,000 gain is constant. Each $1,000 jump represents a smaller percentage gain than the one before, moving from 9,000 per ounce to 10,000 per ounce is only an 11% gain, and from $14,000 per ounce to 15,000 per ounce is only a 7% gain. Gold can move 1% in a single trading day, sometimes 2% or more, and that's absolutely correct. We've seen we've seen it more in recent recent weeks, even re recent the last couple of weeks. We've seen some tremendous gains of over 1%, uh, over 2% actually, um, at times. So what he's saying is is that you know there is no there's an inherent value, but there's no set value. You know, to to it's it's all completely 100% market driven, as all things should be. But at least with with gold and silver, it is market driven. And I can already hear some of you saying, "Oh, it's not market driven. It's manipulated by by the you know the central banks, manipulated by government, manipulated by by the powers that be." I get it, and I agree. But here's the thing, and this is the part that that gets me you know, somewhat excited about the prospects, is that these central banks that are often charged with, "Oh, they're the ones who are manipulating," they're buying gold. They're buying silver. They're buying lots of it, record amounts. So if you're saying, well, I don't want to buy gold because it can be manipulated by the central banks. Okay, well, since they're buying it in record numbers, should, and you think that they can manipulate it that much, <laughs> buy. <laughs> I mean, it should be a no-brainer. should be a no-brainer. Um, then we get to the Fed. Let me, let me actually cut past some of this stuff. Because it's it's a dry read for sure. But let's get to the important stuff. If the Fed starts easing interest rates, gold will go even higher. And they are talking about obviously easing interest rates um, three or four times in 2024 alone. For Bruce Legal, a former macro fund manager and author of Global Macro Playbooks, central bank tightening has been uh, a negative as well um, as all of them are pulling money out of the system. That is negative gold. So in the short term, maybe the balance of 2023, I think gold probably trades lower. But once the Fed stops tightening and they start easing rates, gold can go higher later next year and into 2025. He added that the future path of gold is going to be determined by the degree of the landing, depending upon if it's a soft landing or if it's a hard landing in the recession. And to be clear, listen, when they were raising rates, raising rates, raising rates, a lot of the gold uh, bears were just like, oh, this is it. It's going to tank. We're, we're going to be at, at, at $1,200 an ounce here anytime now. And then it just never happened. Gold and silver both demonstrated a resiliency through the, the rate increase that we haven't seen. You know, there's usually a very direct correlation between higher interest rates and lower gold, gold and silver prices. We didn't see that. We saw a little little dips and valleys here, but then they would spike back up. Okay, you go back all the way to, I think it was February, late February, early March, we saw it hit pretty much a bottom, but that bottom wasn't like it wasn't like twelve hundred bucks, okay. And then it started spiking, and of course because of the the uh, banking collapses, people started pulling their monies out of the bank back uh, in March and uh, on into April and May, and that really helped to to prop up gold through the interest rate heights. Point point being is that it survived. The prices stayed high, relatively high, through the price uh, the rate increases. Now that we're expecting the rates to drop, that should be another another no-brainer as far as 
wanting to invest in physical precious metals. Back to the quote from Mr. Bruce Legal. If it is a hard landing, it'll go up a lot more because it means that the central banks will ease more and they have to print again. A soft landing means that maybe they don't have to ease quite as much, he explained. On the other hand, if a hard landing happens, it sets the case for an even stronger inflationary interest rate environment later on because it puts more fuel onto the fire down the road again. The economist uh, expressed concern that if the central banks do go into a huge easing mode, it sets up the next phase of higher rates and higher inflation. Nevertheless, legal said that gold is indeed an investment and usually for uh, safe haven keeping uh, to safe haven keeping to maintain one's purchasing power. <laughs> Sorry about that. There we go. All right. Nope, that's not it either. Gosh, push the right button. I need a producer so badly. You guys can help out by purchasing more gold. <laughs> at jdrgold.com unintentional pitch thrown in there but here's the thing uh, you know uh, am i a fan of holding on to to some gold and silver especially silver uh, for the sake of barter for the sake of you know having having access to to easily transportable funds yes i am especially because i do believe that the crap is going to hit the fan sometime in the next year or two years five years however long and physical precious metals are the way to go keep them in your safe keep them ready to go even keep, I saw one guy, he says he keeps a little baggie full of uh, silver coins and even a couple of gold coins, a little baggie, he keeps those in his bug out bag, right? That, hey, kind of makes sense, you know, maybe. It's a little heavy, in my humble opinion. If, if you're in a bug out situation, I don't know if, if gold and silver is the best thing to carry around, but hey, then again, who am I, right? But as far as retention of wealth and, and protecting your life savings, this is why I work with Genesis Gold Group, because taking your your retirement, whether it's an old uh, 401k, your current IRA, your government accounts, whatever types of retirement accounts you have, getting them moved out of the uh, riskier markets and during a time of economic strife such as we're in today and moving them into physical precious metals, precious metals that, you know, when you, if and when you ever take a distribution, Lord willing, you will be able to take distributions. <laughs> you know, I guess you never know. I mean, it could get really bad. But but when you do take distributions, you take those in the form of those physical precious metals being shipped to your your home. Okay, take your distributions, get them in the gold and silver, the, the actual physical coins or bars or whatever sitting in your in the your uh, depository, right there, physically there. Just have them sent physically to you. Again, I'm not an economist, not a financial advisor, but I do like and appreciate my sponsors at Genesis Gold Group. They are a Christian company. I've seen a lot of gold companies out there. I've worked with several of them. I won't work with them again because they don't treat people the right way. They're not Christian companies. They're not, you know, they're, they're working with the CCP. They're, they support Democrats. There's many reasons why I don't support the vast majority of gold companies out there. The reason I do like, like Genesis Gold Group so much is because they check all the boxes. Then they do it the right way. They do business the right way. They're not trying to con you with $10,000 in free silver or anything like that. They're actually trying to just do business the right way. So give them a call or, or uh, you can call them at 800-200-GOLD. That's 800-200-GOLD or go to jdrgold.com. I think that brings up, are we up? Yeah, we are. We are up to the last story. So let me pull that one up. For this last story, I swear when I first saw the headline, I thought this has to be the Babylon Bee. This couldn't be real. This couldn't be real life. Then I thought, nope, it's not the Babylon Bee, so this must be an exaggeration. 
this couldn't be real. I mean, certainly, certainly, the United States of America doesn't have a regime in charge that is even weaker than most of us believe, but apparently we do. Apparently we do. Apparently the Biden-Harris regime is so weak that we can't even put forth a, a proper nuclear deterrent following the launch of a uh, ballistic missile from a country that has vowed at certain times in recent years to to destroy us. Hey, you might think that that's important enough to, to put an actual deterrent, but no, this, this regime does not think so. This article comes from Daniel Greenfield over at Front Page Mag. It's titled, Biden warns North Korea that nuking America is, quote, quote, unacceptable. I see. Okay, well, let's let's see if it really says that or if there's an exaggeration here. According to the article, deterrence isn't that complicated. It requires establishing the credible threat of force. What's our deterrence level? Well, it is this bad. And uh, I'm going to read it. This is a quote from The Hill. The White House warned that any, quote, nuclear attack by North Korea against the United States or its allies is unacceptable and will result in the end of the Kim regime. <sighs> Unacceptable for North Korea to attack the United States of America with nuclear weapons. Unacceptable. That's literally the verbiage. More from the statement, the United States reaffirmed its unwavering commitment to provide extended deterrence to the ROC, or ROK, sorry, Republic of North Korea, Republic of Korea, whatever, <laughs> I don't know, the, the, the North, the Kim Jong-un guys, backed by the full range of U.S. capabilities, including nuclear. In other words, hey, you may not know this. I know that you guys are, are striving to build nuclear weapons. You're str you probably already have nuclear weapon capabilities. Now you just have to test and affirm that you have the ability to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles to be able to go across the Pacific and hit California, where I am, we know that you guys are doing this, but just in case you didn't know, if you nuke us, we'll consider that unacceptable, and we're going to end the Kim regime. We might even nuke you back. Now, the only reason there hasn't been a nuclear exchange since World War II, since the first, basically, we had one, they saw the devastation, and nobody wanted a piece of that. Not again. The reason is because of what's called mutually assured destruction. That's an, it's, it's easy to understand. We've got enough nukes to destroy you. You've got enough nukes to destroy us. Okay, so that's why Russia, or at that time the Soviet Union during the Cold War, that's why they didn't attack us. We didn't attack them. That's why China doesn't attack us, and we don't attack them. There's a desire there. I'm sure there are some warmongers who are trying to figure out how to hack the system and make sure that we could just nuke them and, and be a preemptive strike. There's got to be some Nikki Haley's or Dick Cheney's out there trying to push for that. But for the most part, you know, for for the last 70, 80 years, it's been it's been a state of of let's just not nuke each other. OK, that's between superpowers. We're talking about North Korea here. So having to warn North Korea that, hey, if you guys have like three or four nukes, you might be able to, to take out a few of our cities if we can't stop them, but we're definitely going to destroy you. I mean, obliterate you. It's not the end of the Kim regime. It's the end of, of North Korea. 
Okay, that's that's the message that you send if as they're testing ballistic missiles. Again, their quote was <laughs> nuclear attack, a nuclear attack by North Korea against the United States or its allies is unacceptable and will result in the end of the Kim regime. That's weak. Let's just call it what it is. That's as weak as it gets. Back to Greenfield. He says, I'm glad that Biden has staked out the bold position that nuking America is unacceptable. The correct formulation here is that it will result in North Korea turning into a sea of glass, not that it will result in the end of the Kim regime, as I stated, which suggests that we'll begin imposing some more sanctions and maybe get around to possibly invading and then spending 20 years trying to win the hearts and minds of the extended Kim family. Statement is a long-winded way of saying that in the event of a new of a of a NORC, North Korean nuclear strike in South Korea, we'll possibly be willing to nuke them. Possibly, maybe. We'll we're not taking that off the table. If you guys nuke South Korea, who are our allies, then you know may, we might we might we might nuke you back. This is this really is real world in 2023, and I. I think it's going to get worse in 2024, but let me, let's end this, or let's end this story. After a whole lot of decades of worthless negotiation with the North Koreans, we have limited deterrence because we blew our credibility a long time ago. Would we actually get into a nuclear exchange with the North Koreans to defend South Korea? Probably not. Much like our defense of Taiwan, our deterrence lacks credibility. It doesn't help that we keep negotiating with whatever Kim won the genetic, <laughs> genetic and firing squad lottery and getting taken for a ride. We've been negotiating so well, and we're now telling the North Koreans that if they nuke us, they'll be in big trouble. That is not a position of strength. That is a position of weakness. And it's not just it's not just North Korea. It's not just China. It's not just, I mean, so many things happen. This is the part that I don't think enough, enough Americans understand. I'm not going to say it's just leftists and, or because there's independents that don't get it. There's even many Republicans that don't get it. There's a reason why there were no new wars started when Trump was in office. It's because everybody looked at him. They saw his action. They saw his demeanor. They, saw his, they, they heard his words, and they thought, hmm, he'll hit us back. Let's just not hit. Okay? Tons of wars under under Barack Obama, tons of wars under George W. Bush, wars under Bill Clinton. Now, new wars seemingly popping up every every couple of months under Joe Biden. For whatever reason, during the four years with Trump in the White House, there were zero new wars, none. Now, I'm not a big fan of being antagonistic, but there's a difference between being antagonistic in foreign affairs and being just boldly confident and declaring, hey, we will destroy you. South Korea is our ally. We will destroy you if you attack them. We have interests there. Okay, South Korea is very different, by the way. Just to be clear, South Korea is very different from, from Iraq or Afghanistan. Okay, Our interests in Iraq and Afghanistan were, were minimal. They truly were. And, I mean... We, we could have gone after the rare earths in Afghanistan. We didn't for whatever reason over a 20-year period, whatever. But when it comes to South Korea, we actually do have a, uh, a true ally there. 
and being able to say, hey, yes, we will back them if you if you nuke them. That should be a no-brainer, even for the Biden-Harris regime, but apparently it's not. Apparently it's not. We need to get strength back. We need to get Christ back.